Good evening, everyone, and Your Excellency, Professor, the Honourable Dame Marie Bashir, Governor of New South Wales. Welcome home. It's wonderful to have you here this evening. And I'd also like to welcome all the other members of our university community. It's great to see such a turnout tonight because this is a very, very special night. Because tonight we are officially launching a new database and it's beyond 1914, the University of Sydney and the Great War. So after the launch, which Her Excellency is going to very kindly do for us, Tamsin Peach is going to lead a discussion group, which will be seated here, and I'm sure you're going to be absolutely fascinated by what they have to say. But before we do anything else, I would like to welcome Auntie Norma Ingram to the stage to do our welcome to country. Thank you, Auntie Norma. Your Excellency. She's just so gorgeous, isn't she? We must all agree. We must all agree. Yeridumarang, you and Norma Ingram. Now that's my language, which is Wiradjuri, and Her Excellency, is, of course, is our Wiradjuri sister. She's been adopted into, into, into our country. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Norma Ingram. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from central New South Wales, Cowra, but I have lived in this place here in, in the local city for many years, for most of my life indeed. I've been invited here today to welcome you to country, which I do so with the greatest of respect and honour, knowing that with it comes much responsibility. Today I welcome you to the traditional lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. The Eora Nation um, is bounded by three rivers, our natural boundaries, the Hawkesbury River to the north, the Nepean River and the Georges River. The Gadigal is one of 29 small clan groups of the Eora, and we've also our other uh, language group, which is uh, our other um, so smaller clan group is the Wongal, which is Newtown, Marrickville, which is um, our sister, very close to us. The Gadigal and the Wongal have lived in harmony with, the with and nurtured their land, sea and environment for thousands of generations since the dream time. Indeed, the Gadigal people um, are the first ones, or were the first ones, to experience colonisation in this country by the English and, um, and visited and, and welcomed in, sorry, welcomed in the tall ships. I acknowledge any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today, and certainly the other Aboriginal nations right across these ancient lands. This state has statutory responsibilities to care for country, Aboriginal people, and Aboriginal culture. We Aboriginal people have custodial responsibilities to make sure that that happens. Welcome to country is a very important part of Aboriginal culture. It is as important as dance, song, art, which is recognised um, nationally and internationally. We also have a responsibility to pass, we as Aboriginal people that is, have a responsibility to pass on our culture to others so that they too can know and respect how important it is. After all, it is the oldest continued practice culture on this planet. We must ensure that it continues as part of the Australian psyche. Welcome to Country does three things really for me, probably does a whole lot more, but it lets our spiritual ancestors 
and the land know that you mean them no harm. It provides safe passage from our spiritual ancestors as we pass from one Aboriginal country to another. And it acknowledges and reaffirms Aboriginal people's special place and relationship and responsibility to Mother Earth and our traditional lands. We must also recognise and, and acknowledge that Aboriginal culture and history uh, is part and parcel of this country. Australian history didn't start in 1788, it started in the Dreamtime. It is there for all Australians to share. I wish to acknowledge our elders, past and present. Elders have a special place in Aboriginal culture and they also have a responsibility to nurture our younger generation. Who knows, we may soon have an Aboriginal person who could be Chancellor of this old, old university. It is a very important place in education. I remember my mother had a fourth class education. I was born and raised on the Aboriginal Reserve and uh, under the Aboriginal Welfare Act. And I have the privilege of going to Harvard University and graduating with a master's degree. So for me, that whole, uh, that whole journey is very special. We are, have people in this place who also have a very responsible position, and that is to ensure that all peoples receive a good education. I wish you all good health, and certainly to our Excellency and, um, and her wonderful husband, Sir Nicholas, um, to all of you and your families. No matter where you've come from today, from across the country or from across the other side of the world, welcome to Gadigal country. And may our spiritual ancestors walk with you and guide you on a safe journey home. Remember, there may be tar and cement and big buildings and many tall buildings, including this one, on Gadigal land, but it always was, always is, and always will be Aboriginal land. Enjoy your evening. Thank you. Thank you, Norma, for that very warm welcome to country. And let me pay my respects to the elders past and present of the Gadigal people. Norma has a great love of our university and we're absolutely delighted to have you here again tonight, so thank you. Tonight is one of the very special occasions that we are going to have over the next three years. This is the three-year period of commemoration of the university's contribution to the Great War a very sad time and a, a time in which our universities, staff and students made enormous sacrifices. We lost 197 of our staff and students in the Great War. And in talking to my husband about this last night and this event, he reminded me of his great uncle who was a student at St Paul's who lost his life in the Great War. And there's lots of other stories like that in talking to various people who I spoke to over drinks in the Nicholson Museum. Those sad stories, but they gave their lives for their country. So it's a very important event tonight, and I'm delighted to be here. And I just will recall the vivid event, the vivid light show event we had in May, which was the start of this commemoration, which was absolutely spellbinding. We had photographs from the collection that, that is going to be online, which were projected against our wonderful Great Hall and the tower, the clock tower, and really showed some of the wonderful things that we have in this collection that you're all going to be able to see very soon. 
So tonight is about launching the Beyond 1914, University of Sydney and the Great War, which is about a searchable database which has been put together over the last few years by a team of wonderful people at our university. And it builds across not only the university's collections, but the residential colleges' collections of information. And it's been put together with information from over 2,000 former staff, students, graduates, and their families. Quite an extraordinary amount of work has gone into this. And there's a number of people who really must be thanked for their hard work and for their creativity in putting this together. And let me acknowledge Noree Morrison, the reference archivist, and Associate Professor Julia Horn, who have been really instrumental in this. But they've worked in consultation with a large number of people who, again, I must acknowledge, and they include Emeritus Professor Alan Atkinson, Dr. Tiffany Dolony, Dr. Ian Jack, Dr. Perry McIntyre, Dr. Paul Lancaster, and Dr. Tamson Peach, who I mentioned earlier. And in addition, we have had the assistance of Dr. Ian Johnson, who is a senior research fellow, who's really focused on the database functionality, which is absolutely critical. And it's interesting to know that this database is powered by Heurist, which is an open source language management platform, which has been developed by our humanities department. So it's quite extraordinary we've got that capacity here. The website has been designed again by our university in terms of our web and digital development group, and the, that project has been coordinated by Joe Higgins, who's our World War I centenary project officer here at the university. And I have to add a very special thanks also to the University of Sydney's Chancellor's Committee and St Andrew's College, St Paul's College and Women's College who have very, very generously funded the first stage of this project. And this is, as I said, just the beginning. We did want to show you um, a film which is going to be available on the website. You'll be able to access it actually from the front page of the website. Unfortunately, as you heard earlier, we've had a few technical difficulties and we have some people still working out the back trying to fix them. So if it is fixed, we'll try and show it to you at the end of the panel discussion. But it is really something worthwhile seeing and you will be able to access yourself through the, through the, through the website. But without further ado, I would like to welcome to the stage Her Excellency, our Governor, Marie Bashir. It's wonderful, again, to have you back. Thank you. Thank you, dear Chancellor, Ms. Belinda Hutchinson. It's wonderful to be back in this hallowed hall, if I may, de may describe it as such with friends and colleagues, Vice-Chancellor Dr Spence, Professor Stephen Garten Provost and Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and distinguished members of the panel, including, of course, Associate Professor Julie O'Horn, who's done so much towards this wonderful project, and uh, Joe Higgins, yes, who's made an enormous contribution too. Norma, thank you for your warm and wonderful welcome to country. Yes, having been born on Wiradjuri land myself in the Riverina, I always get a thrill from a Wiradjuri welcome uh, as enunciated by Norman, uh, Norma and many of the clan. So distinguished guests and friends, it's indeed a great pleasure to join you all 
tonight for this significant recognition of the contribution of the University of Sydney's men and women who served in World War I in support of peace and justice on earth. This very significant website, which is being launched tonight, provides an extraordinary and extensive database of biographies and archival information. And certainly, the members of a proud community, Australia's oldest university, the, those who served in World War I, who left their homes and families in this peaceful, faraway land to face danger and even death in unfamiliar and dangerous environments. It is extraordinary to acknowledge that information regarding, as the Chancellor mentioned, 2,500 such courageous and often idealistic and relatively young Australians have been collated, their information, into this website, their school background, their university association, their places of service, military rank, and post-war activity, even what they did following discharge. Even groups of people are recorded who were mates or listed according to their high school background and what studies they undertook at, at university and the campaigns such as Gallipoli in which they served or the sites, the multiple sites on the Western Front where we lost so many of our young men. Numbers certainly and, and the information now recorded forevermore of a nation which must be forever grateful. This has been a marathon task, a labour of respect, gratitude and even love, may I say, for by those who've researched and collated this data, which I believe is priceless in terms of the culture and history of our nation, our identity and what it means to be Australian and an Australian who was part of this great university. Already over 10,000 pages are viewable with an expectation of more to come. The various individuals mentioned in this treasury of a significant chapter in our nation's history include, I want to note, a most outstanding Australian woman Dr. Elsie Jean Dalyell. She was one of the earliest women graduates in medicine at this university and indeed a resident at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, that, that incredibly great hospital. And then went on after working here to the Institute of Preventive Medicine in London in 1912 and having been awarded a prestigious scholarship. She then went and worked in Serbia in 1915 to, sorry, yes, to assist with the typhus epidemic and then on to Malta, Salonika and extraordinary Constant, Constantinople, today's Istanbul. Turkey, of course, at the time was Germany's ally with whom we were in conflict. So she was an outstandingly courageous woman, a great humanitarian. 
After the war, she travelled to the city of dreams, of many of our dreams, Vienna, for all the great music. And certainly, she devoted herself on her return to Sydney in the public health field, treating venereal diseases. So indeed, she was an extraordinary woman for her times, a great Australian. So this story of hers is one of hundreds, hundreds of fine Australians who will now never be forgotten by their university or their nation. This publication, this website, truly embodies, I believe, cliche or not, that difficult to define quality, the spirit of Australia, a quality which binds us together in gratitude, a gratitude forged by the experience that Professor Geoffrey Blaney has entitled The Tyranny of Distance. We were so far from everywhere else that that spirit meant we had to look after one another and care a little more than the usual. A deeply embedded sense of care, of mateship and compassion. And you will find these qualities in abundance in this website, perhaps subdued slightly, but ever-present in Beyond 1914. So it is important too that the editors, the conveners, Professor Horne and those who've supported her in this great project are asking for anyone to come forward who may have photographs, memories, stories, letters of some of their family from whom they're descended or friends that they could assist in adding to this wonderful work in progress. It certainly, truly embodies that spirit lest we forget and we shall never forget. So it is with a great sense of gratitude that I declare launched this website beyond 1914. Thank you all. Your Excellency, thank you so very much. You're always able to bring a wonderful anecdotal story to the table. I sometimes wonder whether you didn't study history at night time when you came to our university, because you're always able to do that for us. So thank you so much for launching the website this evening. That's really, really special for us. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce Joe Higgins, who is our World War I Centenary Project Officer. And I'd like to welcome her to the stage, and she is going to introduce our panel for the discussion. And as you can see, we are really trying hard to get this, this uh, film going, but we'll wait and see what happens. Thank you. I'm not Joe Higgins, I'm Tamsin Peach, but I'd like to invite our panellists to come up to the front. Welcome everyone to our Q&A panel. I'm uh, Tamsin Peach, as I said, and I'm an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow here in the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry at the University of Sydney. And with me to talk about war, death and memory tonight is from my left, 
Stephen Garton, who is Professor of History and Provost and Deputy Chancellor at the University of Sydney and also author of The Cost of War, which looks at war and repatriation. Uh, then Kerry Neal, curator at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, an expert on facial wounds and disfigurement. <laughs> Joy DeMusi is professor in history at the uh, University of Melbourne and author of Living with the Aftermath, Trauma, Nostalgia and Grief in Post-War Australia. And then to my right, uh, we have Mark McKenna, ARC Future Fellow in the Department of History here at the University of Sydney and author of Eye for Eternity. And he has published extensively on the Anzac Myth. And then Brad uh, Madeira is Executive Manager of um, the Anzac Memorial at Hyde Park and a Batterfield archaeologist and also a public historian. And finally, Julia Horn, of whom you've heard a great deal. She is Associate Professor and University Historian here at Sydney University and also the co-organiser of this brilliant project beyond 1914, University of Sydney and the Great War. So please take this opportunity to welcome our panel. The format for tonight is an open one. We'll begin a conversation here amongst the panellists and then there'll be plenty of opportunity to take questions from the floor. So if you have a question when we come to that section, please line up behind the central microphone here and we'll uh, extend the conversation amongst us all. So perhaps, Mark, I could begin with you. Here yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When Britain declared war on Germany mm. on the 4th of August 1914, Australia also found itself at war. Mm. What was the response like in Australia? Well, I think it's fair to say that the response initially was overwhelming support. I mean, Australia's in the middle of an election campaign. Um, Joseph Cook, the Prime Minister, has already offered 20,000 Australian troops in the weeks before war actually breaks out. And I actually, just two weeks ago, reviewed a new book by the historian Douglas Newton, um, which looks at Australia's entry into the war. You know, um, and he makes a pretty compelling case, I think, to, to show that there was, a, there was much evidence for an eagerness, a hunger, for blooding in conflict, even before the war broke out. So in terms of understanding, if you look at the press... If you look at um, the clergy, if you look at our political parties, you can see that there is, in August 1914 at least, a, broadly, a broad base of support for the war. And we know, for example, that enlistment rates were very, very quick to take up. We know that even by the end of August, I think something like 14,000 uh, Australians had enlisted to fight and those uh, rates of enlistment increased up to the time of Gallipoli and then they decreased after, after the time of the Western Front. So initially I think in that first you know, pre-war and post-declaration of war period, um, broadly speaking, overwhelming support. So enlistment rates dropped then in 1916. That's yep. the um, period of the great conscription debates that mm. were so divisive. Mm. What were mm. they about, George? 
Well, um, the nation was asked to vote on whether it should um, commit troops uh, and uh, force troops through conscription to go to war. And it's a fascinating debate here in Australia because Australia's, um, unlike every other country in the empire, Australia does not send conscripted troops. Uh, it's New Zealand? Uh, no, it was conscripted. Uh, the uh, soldiers were conscripted from New Zealand. Um, it's a fascinating uh, debate, really, because um, people are torn. I mean, Mark's right, there's enormous support in 1914, but not, by 1916 there is a war weariness setting in, despite the fact that Australia is supportive, of course, of the empire. But, um, as I say, other countries in the empire um, introduce conscription, and um, Australia stands out as a country that rejects it twice, albeit narrowly. Um, I, guess, I guess the point to make about conscription too, it introduces a whole set of other groups other than the men who go to war as the focus of study, namely women, uh, for who, to whom much of the uh, conscription propaganda was directed, particularly mothers, to give their sons to war. So that invites a, a whole discussion around the, the opinions of trade unions, of the Irish, of Catholics, of Protestants, and, and of women themselves. So. Um, in studies of war, the conscription debates are, are fascinating. We could talk further about them. Yeah, and hopefully we will. But just, just at this point, did, mm. cons did opposition to conscription mean opposition to the war? No, not at all. Um, I mean, you could vote against conscription and be for it. And in fact, that's what happened. Mm. Um, Australia, as I say, voted twice. Um, no, but uh, supported the war effort to, mm. the, to the last. Mm. Julia, what was the response like at the universities? Well, I think that throughout the British Empire, the governing boards of universities, including the Senate at this university, I think within a nanosecond, not that there were nanoseconds in those days, of war being announced, said, we want to support any staff, any student who wants to go over, we will, we will pay you the difference between your professorial salary and your <laughs> military pay, which was the situation here, or we will assist you in some way to make sure that you, you can still graduate. So it's, there's support. But um, what I think is really interesting about universities and, and you know, the people who, who volunteer for active service is that there are essentially two periods. Uh, there's the early period, 1914-15, and then there's the second period, 1916-18. Uh, and what happens there is that in that early period, it's really about getting bodies into trenches to move, you know, those few metres to try and take over, or few feet in those days, to try and take over and win a patch of land. And, of course, universities you know, can provide doctors, which they do right from the beginning. In two days' time, we're about to um, you know, commemorate the first University of Sydney graduate who dies as a doctor in Papua New Guinea in, in that particular campaign. So, so doctors and their professions, are, you know, they provide um, labour, as it were, immediately for their profession. But the other, the other sort of expertise that the university has, as in engineering, geology and so forth, is not recognised until after 1915 as a consequence of the Germans releasing mustard gas uh, in April, May, and the realisation, it still takes both governments a long time to realise that if they're going to win this war, they need a bit of help 
from universities, from scientists, from um, art, you know, people who do arts, who can speak French, who can speak German. So there are two nice stories which I shall share with you. One is um, Henry Mosley, who probably, I'm sure some of you would know, may well have won a Nobel Prize for his um, work, Mosley's Law and Atomic Physics, and who in his late 20s, um, having, a you know, having made this um, amazing entree into atomic physics, the war is announced and he says, I'm off. And here is this physicist, amazing person, and what ha he's commissioned as a telecommunications officer, is sent to Gallipoli and dies. So, you know, that's, that shows, I think, very much bodies being what's required by nations at that stage, not expertise. And the other story, which I love, is Sir Douglas Mawson. And you know, I feel like saying, hands up, who doesn't know Sir Douglas Mawson? But of course, of the Antarctic fame. And he's a graduate of this university. And in the 1920s, he sent a letter to the university after their call for anyone who served um, in the war to come forward and provide records. And his letter says, I want to tell you my war story. It begins after my lecture tour in the United States, where I had to lecture in order to pay off all my debts from my trip to the Antarctic just mm. a couple of years early. And I came back, and Gallipoli had happened, and in June, I thought, I must do something for Australia. I wrote off to the Defence Department and said, here I am, please take me. Well, the Defence Department wrote back and said, we don't want you. <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's a lovely story because he's not, they're not going to put him into a trench in order to be killed. So um, they don't want him, but he wants to work. And he keeps um, annoying them. And finally, they say, why don't you go over to London to the war office there. They probably have something for you. So he pays for his own trip to go all the way across to London, knocks on the door of the war office, and they say, we have nothing for you, because they're also, you know, he's a very famous man by this stage, and they're also not going to put him into a trench, which is what they're wanting to do at that stage. So fine, after this period in 1915, when the, the British government and also the Australian government starts to realise that universities have knowledge and expertise that might actually help them win this war, they relent a little and they finally put him in charge of uh, explosives and he finally becomes the chief of explosives in London because he can't actually come back to Australia. And his letter ends up saying, I really regret that the Australian Defence Department couldn't see that I wanted to serve my country and just help out. And, you know, this is a man who had mounted a major expedition to the Antarctic and who surely would have had the sort of strategic um, ability that may well have done something. Thanks, well, Julie. The bloke who saved him in 1913 was killed and was buried next to Simpson. Right, uh, yeah. At Gallipoli, mm. Robert Bage, uh, mm. who served as an engineer officer on Gallipoli and was killed. So perhaps he was uh, aware <laughs> that... Uh, the sharp end could be mm. rather dangerous. But that, that's a, it leads us on really nicely, Brad. I mean, it sounds like governments in the British War Office are realising that the nature of this war is a very different war than wars they've fought before. And whereas bodies in the past and an officer class, which was drawn from the universities, was their initial response to how they could use the labour that the university was offering, 
very quickly, or in 1915, in April 1915, which is an anniversary we think of in a different context here in Australia, there's a big turn in the war to think about how to fight this technical, industrial technical war. And Brad, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how that technology influenced what happened on the battlefield. Oh, look, I, I, I think the Great War is an extraordinary watershed in, in military history because the uh, the soldiers who are going to fight, and, uh, and and just as a bit of background, I suppose as an Australian, uh, we have two armies during the First World War, a home army that is largely conscript, the Australian Commonwealth Military Forces, uh, and the Australian Imperial Force, an all, all, uh, all volunteer force. Uh, so they, they, are, they are very different. Uh, we did have conscription for our, our home army, but the um, our, our Australian Imperial Force, like our home army, I, I guess, uh, is training using very much the tactics that hadn't that hadn't evolved a great deal through the through the 19th century. They're still rather Napoleonic. Large groups of soldiers marching through across open country to confront other large groups of soldiers. The big problem is that they're carrying a weapon that's sighted to 2,800 metres. Um, the, the other ingredients on the battlefield include automatic weapons, um, very, very uh, more, much more effective artillery than, uh, than, than we've ever known before. And so between 1914 and 1918, we see an extraordinary development in battlefield tactics. They go from almost Napoleonic tactics in 1914 mm. to small teams of experts using weapons, using communication, uh, and also uh, using medical evacuation uh, um, and and uh, um, evolving strategies uh, to uh, to to manage. They're giving individual soldiers much more credit mm. um, than they ever did. In so we're beginning to see the battlefield as a laboratory, really, as a place of experiment and development of all sorts of technologies. You're absolutely right. It's a great description. The battlefield is a, is a dreadful laboratory, um, and uh, and Australians are very keen. Participants. I mean, on that, that first day of enlistment on uh, on Oxford Street, 3,600 people queued in front of uh, in, in front of Victoria mm. Barracks in mm. Paddington to uh, to serve in the AIF. So, you know, those promises of 20,000 soldiers mm. were fulfilled within within days. Mm. And, uh, I'm sitting next yeah. to a missile. So you've got you missile. If digital technology a... doesn't work, old school technology is here to rescue us. Okay. What have you got here? This, this, these are all inert, by the way. Um, but you can see very clearly uh, this, this grenade was made in 1915. Um, it's a very, very basic spherical ball full of blasting powder. It, if you had seen this when it was um, ready to be used, uh, it had about a two-inch um, fuse that had to be lit or indeed was impregnated so that you, you rubbed it against um, uh, something that equated to the, the, like the side of a matchbox, you know, yep. and the blokes would wear a brassard, like a, a tie, if you like, on the front of their, their uniform, and they'd be rubbing these things, and they would hope that that had about nine minutes of spluttering and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and burning, and uh, that would allow them to, to throw it at the enemy. Mark, have a hold. Mm. Yes, thank like? you. <laughs> what does it feel like? Uh, a bit like a cricket ball, actually. 
Very yeah. much like a cricket ball. Very much, and with, a, uh, with a little bit of a protrusion at the end. Yep. There you are, please. <laughs> Sorry, Brad, go on. No, no, oh but, um, and the problem with that is you just can't... The, 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 the fuse is unpredictable. Uh, it's not going to blast in a predictable manner. Uh, it's, it's almost as dangerous to the thrower as it is to the, uh, the people who are a few metres away. And it's always going to throw shrapnel back at you uh, much further than you can throw it. So it's a, it's a very, very dangerous um, piece of equipment, but a very unreliable one. By 1918, it had been replaced uh, in Australian service by one of these, the Mills 1936 grenade. Oh, sorry, the Mills 36 grenade. This one was made in August 1918. And uh, it's, it has a chemical fuse inside it, a very, very exact uh, seven-second fuse. That, uh, and so by, by pulling the pin, and I won't, um, it, uh, it would release the lever, uh, the bar travels down and crushes the chemical fuse, and that's what initiates the blast. Uh, it's, it's very well designed, it's much easier to throw than that thing, and the segmented external casing is not so that it, it, it bursts in a predictable manner, it's so that you can hold it when you've got mud on your hands, and, uh, which is the, the big factor on the Western Front. Battlefield. So by exploring the objects associated with the war, we can see just how much of a laboratory mm. this place was. And I guess the mm. chemistry in there too is a university discipline that's drawn on and so many Australian chemists end up working in the munitions factories in, in Britain. So, so it really, you know, is an object that has extensive reach. That's make an ergonomic comparison. <laughs> Heavier, is it? Right, yeah. So, Kerry, you work on facial wounds. What, what kind of effect did these, these technologies have on soldiers, on real bodies? Well, it was the first time that you were really seeing bodies torn apart. It was no longer a through-and-through -through wound where you had, you know, a nice rounded ball into the barrel of the musket taken through the body. Instead, you had artillery and that sort of automatic mechanised war um, that meant that you had a scale of wounds that you had never seen before. Um, in particular, I'm, I've looked at facial wounds. And so you can imagine that, and I think if Brad maybe wants to disassemble his other toys. <laughs> well, sure, okay. I mean, the, the, this is the big killer on any European battlefield. Uh, it's, it's a field artillery piece, effective to about 4,500 metres. Um, this was designed before the war. The big technology, the big innovation during the war is this bit, the fuse, um, because this makes it extremely accurate. It's because of this and because of machine gun fire that we get trenches. Nobody had expected trench warfare for the Great War. They thought it was going to be a war of sweeping movement, but with this thing being able to shred anything that is above ground, um, they decide to dig holes when they first of the armies clash in 1914. By the end of that year, those holes link up until there's a continuous line of holes stretching from the Swiss border to the North Sea. The way this thing works is that it fires in, in the sort of gun that you see in most parks in Australia, um, a field gun operated by about a, a team of eight people. Some of them are working out how far away the enemy are, and they adjust the timer, a bit like an egg timer. 
Um, they, they figure that if the enemy are about 4,000 metres away, it's going to take 1.7 seconds to get from when they pull the trigger to where they need it to, to explode over the top of their enemy. So they set the egg timer. They then feed it into the weapon. When it's fired, this bit comes flying at the end. That's discarded. And this then travels for those 4,000 metres until they're, uh, they're over uh, the enemy position. As the timer has gone, has wound down, sets off a second, a, a, a second blast inside this steel tube. So that blast throws the timer off, and it spits out 700 little lead pellets, moving at around about 2,000 feet per second. Now that is going to make a very, oh, very yes. grave mess of anything that is above ground. Yeah, and for the first time, it was really taking through, I guess, that highly fertilised mud that we imagine when we think of, say, the Western Front, taking that through into the soldiers' bodies as well, so causing high rates of infection that also had to be dealt with on the fighting front um, as opposed to evacuating out to hospitals. So a lot of triage came into practice and those lines of communication became very important. But there's also surgical innovations as Absolutely. a Absolutely, yep. And I guess one of the ones that I've focused on um, is facial reconstructive surgery. So again, if we're talking about the battlefield being the laboratory, that continues on into a lot of the medical advances that were made as well. So you're talking about a scale um, that had never been seen before where you could have one hospital that was specialising just in facial reconstruction, treating over 8,000 patients over the years of the, the Great War. Um, so they, they had enough patience to test, try, experiment and come up with some of the most innovative techniques that we still use today, um, such as the pedicle tube, which was basically developed as a way to have a continuous supply of blood and the patient's own tissues um, to the area being grafted on the face. So, and again, that's still used today. I mean, how successful were, were the reconstructions? In, uh, unfortunately... As you say, we... <laughs> Oh, hello. We have some images, have perhaps. Joe? Some movement. Perhaps you can... I can yep. talk through. Um, I mean, we're not talking about small gashes. We're talking about entire parts of the face being lost, a jaw completely blown off, um, a nose being torn. Uh, and here we have uh, William Kearsey, who was a coach builder from Inverell on enlistment, and he had a severe... Uh, shrapnel gash basically from the top of his forehead down through to his cheek and what they had to do there was basically fill in the missing parts. I mean in some cases, in some ways William's case was quite a, a mild one compared to some of the other photos um, that I've looked at in the medical files where you do have men with entire jaws missing. So that brings a lot of complications with anaesthesia, how do you perform an operation on someone when the best form of anaesthetic at the time was a cloth over the mouth with ether. Um, so mm. they had to develop new ways and that actually had the intubation tube mm. developed during that period. So the tube would go through the area um, that it was needing to be operated on down into the lungs so that the surgeon was still able to sort of access the face. So these are some of the ways that the war was marking men's bodies. Absolutely, and in a highly visible way, as opposed to the loss of a limb, uh, where you know a pair of trousers and a prosthetic meant that sort of an amputee could be perceived as a whole man as he was walking down the street. 
disfigured were always going to be a visual reminder mm. of the cost of war. So that, that was a visibility that was very evident in the years after the war as well. Absolutely. Um, and I'm wondering perhaps if we could turn to Stephen, you know, the war left its mark on men's bodies, but it also left its mark on the body politic in a way. Um, there were 60,000 men who died and 150,000 who were injured or, or ill as a result of the war. I mean, how are these soldiers and their families supported on the, upon their return to Australia? So there are a number of issues there. I mean, I, I think just to summarise some of the things that have come forward that um, is very clear from the war, it's the first war we know of where more um, men die of wounds than from disease. Um, so it's, it tells you something about the technology and the, and the health consequences that occurred. So there were lots of um, disfigured, injured and wounded soldiers who returned. But one of the things that was deeply puzzling at the time and caused an enormous medical debate was the issue of psychological distress in the soldiers, which they were noticing at the front quite early on. And, of course, the argument was um, this is, first of all, malingering. So there was a malingering argument. So these were soldiers trying to get out of it. Well, the incidence of it was so great, they abandoned the malingering argument very quickly. The next argument was that it was the shock of um, the shells exploding nearby, and that was causing brain damage. Um, but they discovered increasingly that a number of people were suffering psychological symptoms uh, without having shells exploding nearby. So that led to a whole um, investigation of the problem of war neurosis, something that um, we now tend to think of in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, but these men were um, suffering significant psychological injuries during the war and, of course, came back with psychological uh, injuries. And one of the challenges in the post-war period was um, seeing a significant growth in the pensions for psychological injuries in the 1920s and 30s. It was the one category um, that was growing as a pensionable um, injury during the 1920s and 1930s. So that's a sort of element of cost. But of course, all of the nations had to come up with a system for dealing with the return of wounded and ill soldiers and the families of those who had lost um, breadwinners during the course of the war. So Australia had its repatriation system. Every other country had its repatriation system. There's an interesting nuance to the Australian repatriation system, very different to what happens in the UK. Um, and it tells us, I think, something about the ethos of the war and the Anzac um, myth, uh, legend, um, Australian identity that comes out of the war. Most of the countries in the war, when they introduce their repatriation system, people get a pension, soldiers get a pension when they're assessed at having a 20% disability level. We don't, don't need to go into the technicalities, but basically you had to reach a 20% disability in order to qualify for a pension. Australia does something very different. It says you can qualify for a pension at 5%. So in other words, a huge um, industry gets produced um, for, um, for many of the returned soldiers to support them on the sort of egalitarian assumption um, that anyone who fought really deserves um, a pension. And that creates a situation in which by the 1930s, uh, one-fifth of the entire Commonwealth government expenditure uh, was devoted to the repatriation system. It's a huge proportion of 
of yeah. annually of the federal government spend. And so what it does create is two welfare states in Australia. Mm. You've got a very generous uh, welfare system for returned soldiers and the families of returned soldiers and those who didn't return, and a much more niggardly um, civilian welfare system. And it sets up these interesting cultural tensions in the post-war period about who's entitled to speak about Australia. And in fact, some of the returned soldier organisations argued that in fact, uh, election to parliament should only be on the basis of being a returned soldier. So there's this argument about they were the true citizens, they had fought, they had sacrificed, though they were the only ones entitled um, to be the But I imagine there's citizens. quite a bit of pushback against that too. There was, of course. Joy, do you have something to add? Oh, well, I mean, I guess, I guess the issue of um, war widows and, and their pension comes up in this context, of course. Um, um, and women argue, and the motherhood pension, uh, women argue very strongly that their sacrifice of giving not only one, but two, sometimes three sons, should be repatriated, should be supported financially after the war, um, and of course, um, you know, uh, wives as well of their husbands. So there's this big debate um, in the 20s and 30s um, that women uh, launched to get recognition. I mean, there is recognition during the war and immediately afterwards, but uh, at the sharp end of uh, financial recognition becomes a much more contested sort of issue. Uh, and so um, mothers and wives launch sort of political campaigns really to have their sacrifice, if I can use that term in that context, their own sacrifice of giving their sons and their husbands to the war effort, recognised uh, in, in financial terms, not just in rhetoric and through symbolic um, methods, but in, in a financial way. So this, this kickstarts quite a campaign mm. around um, mothers and, and wives arguing for their, their recognition of their sacrifice to the nation. So we see this politicisation of grief, which That's is right. what you've... Well, indeed, and uh, many of these women are driven by grief. Um, sometimes they articulate it publicly, sometimes in private. Um, we have letters in uh, the repatri repatriation records of um, mothers who've lost their sons writing to the um, authorities uh, in desperation, really, mm. um, about their own grief. Um, so grief drives a lot of their um, belief that you know they have put themselves and their families on the line and deserve some recognition um, and not just rhetoric. Yep. Mm. I mean, one of the big, of course, public institutionalizations of grief is in the form of these war memorials, mm, which, and, yeah, which um, Brad and, and Kerry both, both work in. But they also have a history, don't they, that the, the, his, the history of the memorialization of the First World War Mark, could you say a little bit well, about that? Well, it starts uh, very early. I mean, one of the things about the Anzac legend, for example, which is really important, I think, is that, um, you know, we have to realise that it happened <clears throat> virtually on the first anniversary of Gallipoli. We were already memorialising Anzac. So there's a... And, and Joseph Cook also, in his diary, before the war breaks out, wrote that he could foresee how we would remember this experience in generations to come. So as well as a hunger for conflict, there's a hunger for commemoration, for memorialising the dead from, from the very first moment. 
But, mm. Yep, mm. and we see, um, we see on the memorial, though I think the Anzac Memorial is a little bit different, the names of, the, of those who've served listed, whilst this kind of notion of sacrifice is a collective one. Yeah, look, every, uh, every community went to war separately in, in Australia. The tragedy of Federation was only 14 years old when the Great War broke out. Brad speaks out. as a Western so, Australian. Uh, you know, when, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so when it came time for each community to remember its fallen, they did so in a very, very unique way. Um, you know, my home state turned our botanic gardens into its war memorial. In Melbourne, they created the shrine. Here in Sydney, um, we've got this bizarre and fascinating uh, artistic statement. There's the High Deco building in, in Hyde Park, but part of that memorial is a uh, facility for veterans uh, to establish self-help groups. No other memorial establishes that. Uh, there are, there are um, uh, meeting rooms for, for doctors to, to, um, to talk to veterans about the ongoing consequences of high-velocity bullet wounds, of post-traumatic stress disorder, or what, what, you know, what the term we would use today for, for, for shell shock. Um, and, and the way uh, at the heart of the memorial is, is the statue sacrifice. Uh, the, the, the story of the Spartan warrior being returned dead on his shield, but immediately obvious is that that shield is being supported by his mother, his sister, his wife and infant child. Uh, this, this need to incorporate, because the war was so far away for Australians and because none of our 60,000 dead were repatriated, well, one, one, one general um, was, was sent home, the rest lie beneath foreign fields. It became very important for Australians to, to create memorials. Mm. Did, did that shift though? Did the initial response to the war in the 19, early 1920s change by the end of the 30s, Stephen? Um, I, I just, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to answer <laughs> Brad's question. Um, I think that, I mean, there's two things that I think are really interesting about war memorialisation. One is um, in, for the World, World War One. One is um, transnational, um, and that is the use of the individual soldiers' names everywhere. That's pretty recent. As a young man, I lived in Brussels in the suburb of Waterloo, um, and so the battlefield of Waterloo was, um, you know, a couple of hundred metres down the road, and there are no names of soldiers there, none whatsoever. There's a mound, and you climb 250 steps, and there's a line at the top, and there's, you know, Wellington, but there's no names of individual soldiers. From the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, people start thinking we've got to memorialise the individual citizen soldier. So the naming thing is very, quite recent, and obviously it's um, rampant across the world with World War I. One of the interesting things, however, is what does Australia do with the names? And if you go to many of those war memorials in France, but also the community war memorials in Canada or New Zealand or any of the other places, they record the names of the dead. Um, and there are a number of war memorials in Australia that record, um, that record the names of the dead. But the vast majority of them record the names of all those who served. And that's a really unusual 
and unique, almost unique aspect of Australian war memorialisation coming out of World War I. So there's a kind of interesting tension there about what are we doing in terms of memorialisation in Australia about the war. It is about acknowledging the dead and the death and sacrifice and the tragedy, but it's also saying, look, um, they founded the nation, anyone who fought is deserving of commemoration. So there's kind of an interesting tension built into the whole dynamic of Anzac from the beginning about did we found the nation or do we commemorate the tragic loss? And uh, that tension, I think, remains throughout um, the Australian sort of cultural expression and cultural grappling with. Is it a moment of grief or is it a moment of national becoming and the ways in which those two intersect? But Australian, um, Australian war memorials are very different to the war memorials overseas because they often name um, all those who served. Which is really interesting because we see also, sorry, on our memorials, and I was going to compliment you on what you've done because you're remembering people from this university who served not in, Australia, in the Australian Imperial Force. Uh, and so many of our memorials remember people who didn't just serve in the Australian Imperial Force. The, um, the memorial that the, uh, the Marrickville Council have just demolished um, uh, includes the name of, of uh, a local who died serving with the Canadians, but he was from Dulwich Hill. It's the only place in Australia we're ever going to see his name. 20%, you know, Brad. Yes, well, but, but in, well, in fact, um, in ours people didn't even fight necessarily for the AIF. You know, they were fighting, I've yet to find one fighting for the German army, but, you know, you never know, that might come in. And I just, you know, this discussion about um, community, your point about how it is very local, and I think that we see this with the Book of Remembrance, which is published in 1939, both as a memorial, but also, as Stephen points out, as this collection of people who, served overseas, served in the campaigns overseas. It's not even complete. It has 2,036 names, and we know it's not complete. Um, so, but how it began, and just before I s spend one minute talking about this, I think it might be a good time to show the film, because the film is <laughs> explains okay. a bit about our Book of Remembrance at the University of Sydney, which begins in 1915 with a call from um, the editor of Hermes, the student newspaper, saying, we, you know, our, our friends have gone off to war and we want to learn something about them. So anything that you can tell us about them, please send to us and we'll start compiling um, some biographies, which are then published throughout, in Hermes throughout the war. And as a consequence of this gathering together of um, letters, uh, you know, any, any bits and pieces of personal information, the university, some years later, is inspired to produce a book of remembrance of people, whether they died or not, based on this collection of something like 25,000 separate sheets of paper, uh, which tell the stories of these people. So it does, I think, really nicely illustrate both the community, uh, also the sense of it, it's, it's not just death that we're memorialising here. And if we, she says, looking up at the cinema, <laughs> do I wave my hat? 
wave. And um, we can just spend a few minutes looking at this film. project is to fill out these stories that we have. We have these wonderful compelling stories but they're only snippets and so this is what the database will hopefully show. We can fill in these gaps that we have. At 4.30pm one of my men reported that near a tree on the left of our trench he had struck water. Welcome news as we had been very short. On investigation I found a stone constructed well some five yards in front of our trench. No wonder the Turks were sniping at the tree in hope of catching the men drawing water. We tunnelled underneath and after drawing some 15 feet we struck the wall of the well and a portion of this we removed. We enjoyed the sweetest drink. The stories that came out of these letters, the diaries, the photographs, the postcards, there's ephemera such as Christmas cards, their song books, their menus, and it was just it was very personal as well, reading um, some of these tragic stories. This is, so far, our only death, and I think the record a very good one. Our grief is sometimes at the root, selfish in the passionate sorrow over the loss of a dear companion, friend or relative, because such a deep and pure pleasure has been suddenly plucked out of our life. There come cases where he who remains suffers more than he who goes. Victor Steele works in the Fisher Library as a librarian and he writes a number of letters to Leggy Brereton who's the librarian here. For me the, the best line is when he says to Leggy Brereton and I'm so sorry to hear that there's still a backlog in the cataloguing. So he's just trying to you know, be nice and chatty, put a bit of normalcy to what he's actually experiencing here on the front. On another letter he mentions that um, he hasn't seen Storky for a while. Uh, Percy Valentine Storky also works at the Fisher Library as an admin assistant and he's also studying law at the same time. Um, and he wins the Victoria Cross for actions um, in France in April 1918. And um, there's only over 60 Victoria Cross winners, and he is one of them. They fired at us, occasionally direct. All the time, bullets meant for the troops some 100 yards in front were whizzing over and between us. No one was hit until 2.45am when Private Penn, a fine young Englishman and one of my best men, was shot in the head. Poor chap was dead when I reached him. Little incidents like this call forth the wish that those responsible for this awful cataclysm will receive their just deserts when they are brought to their knees. Women have different roles from what we would normally expect. We have masseuse, um, or what we would now know as physiotherapists. We have um, women ambulance uh, drivers, and um, we, we have the, the nurses as, as well. Dear Professor Walsh, this letter has been in my mind for a long time. The crowded hour leaves little time to write them. I've been here for about four months. We left London on February 9th, and I brought some small laboratory equipment with me. Typhus was raging when we came out, and I was speedily at work here, 
This is a fever hospital that has been adapted from a Serbian hospital, incredibly filthy, and an unfurnished building which was meant for the barracks. Lady Paget came here first with four people from her unit, and the five did Herculanean work until four of them contracted typhus. Um, and what's also interesting is um, the, the sense of community that you get from these women. Um, so we have uh, Buckley Turkington, we've got DL and we've got Hamilton Browns. When you read the letters of um, Buckley Turkington, Hamilton Brown and DL, is that they know each other. They've all came through medical school at the university um, at different times. Well, two have come together, but they've been residents at the Women's College, so they've known each other. Um, in 1914, there's just over 3,000 students. 273 of them are women. So I would imagine that any of the women who are here, they know each other. There seems to be a more hopeful outlook now but the end of 1917 was very gloomy. Now we are going to give Fritz a bit of his own in the spring. I like this hospital very well. Some of the best known men are on the staff here and I am the only woman. There are over 2,000 beds and the work in the lab is mostly of the usual type, with the addition of more unusual cases, such as Malta fever, trench fever and trench nephritis. What we are hoping to do is to get a bigger picture. John Wilton Brain is an absolutely extraordinary figure and the information we have it's just not complete on him. We have his biographical sheet and a letter that he sends to the Union and he just gives the information quite briefly but you just want this information expanded on and we would just love to know the full story. The end. The end. <laughs> um, so I think now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, so, the star is somewhere in the audience. I can't see Nari. And the filmmaker, oh, there's Nari, and the filmmaker was out the back. Is he gone? <laughs> he snuck out. <laughs> I think Mark I wants just to say to, to make one comment. I mean, I think um, over the last two decades, we've focused on Anzac Day, yeah, no. or we've focused on Gallipoli and Anzac in terms of remembering the war. And what this does is really start to broaden our patterns of commemoration and give them more nuance and new layers so that when we think about commemorating the war, we're commemorating the war and not just one battle, one event, one campaign. Yeah, thanks, and I think this is a great time now to turn to you, just as the database is turning to the public. Um, we had a question submitted by Hugh Rolston. Is Hugh here tonight? Yes, Hugh, do you want to make your way to the microphone? Um, if, if you have a question as well, please make your way to the microphone and uh, line up behind Hugh. But Hugh got in advance, so thanks, Hugh. Um, I guess my interest arises from the fact my father was in the war from two days from today in 1914. He was a graduate of this university. I have a photograph of him here in the University Scouts in 1903. One of our speakers up here spoke about being prepared. Australia was prepared. People like him were physically preparing and mentally preparing, not only in military training, but he used to sleep my uncle, my, his younger brother, told me, used to sleep on a hard floor on the veranda for a year before World War I, 
because he thought it would prepare him physically for the arduous task of being at war. My question is twofold. First of all, was there a military, uh, sorry, a legal or um, any kind of reason why Australia had to follow Britain into a European war, uh, by treaty or by law? And secondly, were we prepared as a nation for war? I've mentioned that individuals were prepared and certainly uh, the, the Prime Minister was talking about it, uh, the possibility of, of being prepared. Uh, so my question is twofold. Were we prepared and did we have an obligation? Well, I, <clears throat> I can take the obligation part of the question first, perhaps. Um, Australia had no choice but to follow Britain into the war. We have to remember that at the time we didn't have complete legislative independence as a dominion of the British Empire. This is before the Statute of Westminster. Um, and so the Governor-General actually hands the Prime Minister um, news of the outbreak of war. So Australia was constitutionally bound to follow Britain to war. The issue was how we would contribute. That was certainly up to us to determine, but the issue was how rather than whether we would or would not. Uh, and I think we were as prepared as any nation in the British Empire, indeed as prepared as anyone in the world. Uh, we'd been practising for a long time. Uh, we had, in 1911, introduced conscription for 12-year-olds. So from the time, if you were a male within reasonable distance of a drill hall, uh, anywhere in Australia, you had a compulsory, although part-time, military commitment uh, from the, the age of 12 until you were in your mid-20s. Uh, we had, and, and you were therefore formed into a, lo a local unit. We, we'd created a small arms factory that came into production at Lithgow in New South Wales in, in 1913, so we were producing a very fine service rifle. Uh, before that, we'd opened a um, Commonwealth Government clothing and a Commonwealth Government harness factory in, in Victoria. So uh, we could clothe and, and provide all of the belt equipment for our mounted and dismounted troops. Uh, the Australians went to the Great War looking distinctively different because they had a different uniform. Uh, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, the South Africans all wore British service dress. Our soldiers were better paid and they had this background. They really looked uniquely different amongst all of the, uh, uh, amongst all of the, the, uh, the British forces. I think our soldiers were as, as well trained. Uh, what we did lack was administration, but, but for sharp-end soldiers, um, rifle shooting was the most popular sport in Australia from 1910 until 1920. And the university was prepared because it established a Department of Military um, Science, Military Studies in 1905 and you could get a Diploma of Military Studies from the University of Sydney. Um, so it was training in field. Yes, <laughs> yep. so they were prepared. Hmm. I think, um, um, I think he's question is a really telling one because doesn't it raise the point that no nation was prepared for what would follow? It was prepared for a war yes. at that point. But as we know, as you've said, Radden, we know the industrial warfare it became, no nation could foresee no. over the following four years uh, how that war would unfold. So, as everyone mm -hmm. said, preparedness for a, yeah. a, a sort of idea of war that was in 
the minds of those at that time in 1914. Mm. But very quickly, that was outdated, maybe. Mm. It was mm. found wanting or tested mm. because it became such an industrial warfare. Mm. Um, so by 1918, it's a whole different scenario of what war is. And, of course, a great example of that is that Britain itself is importing all its chemical substances, mm -hmm. all its dyes, mm -hmm. much of its te technology, mm -hmm. uh, industrial technology from Germany itself. Mm. Um, do, we have, do we have other questions coming? Yes, please go to the microphone. If you have a question, please go to the microphone so I, I know how many. Susan Colson, I have a question for Kerry Neal. Kerry, um, you spoke about facial disfigurement during the war and um, in Britain with the Battle of Britain when pilots were severely burnt. They were operated at, at East Grinstead. Um, clearly, there's been a mirror program of sorts in Australia. I, could you comment further on whether there were pockets because there were communities, I believe, that actually accepted these facially disfigured people into their communities? Did Australia have a similar sort of pocket areas that dealt with people with disfigurement? Not in the same way that I, th I think you're thinking of East Grinstead in the Second World War actually set up basically a community um, for the disfigured fighter pilots who, interestingly enough, were being treated by the cousin of the First World War surgeon, Harold Gillies, who had treated um, most of the men that I've researched who were treated at the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup in Kent. Um, what happened in Australia seemed to be that the men found their way individually through finding new work out in rural areas and deciding what they were going to do um, post-war rather than being labelled as disabled through their disfigurement. A lot of men, even though there was an 80% pension available to them for severe disfigurement, um, there's wonderful statements in a lot of the repatriation files that say, I wasn't disabled, I was disfigured and had trouble eating, that's all because, um, you know, we're talking about jaw wounds, things like that. So they didn't actually see themselves as disabled in the same way that a lot of other war-wounded veterans did. So most of them tried to find farming jobs, labouring, sort of manual jobs um, that they were more than capable of carrying out. And they didn't form associations in the same way that the guinea pig club of the Second World War did or the Le Guerre Casse, which are the broken mouths of the French First World War disfigured. So, no, Australians, I don't know, we had that sort of stoic mentality that they went back out to the land and forged their own way. Stephen, do you want to just say a little bit about that problematic relationship to the welfare recipient, being a welfare recipient? Um, I think there's a very interesting tension in the, um, a cultural tension that emerges around the repatriation system. Um, you deserve it as a right for um, fighting, and yet there's a sort of... Um, undercurrent of tension about um, is it unmanly to accept uh, a pension and you can see that in the pension administration files and you can see it as Kerry quite rightly points out of people saying well no I'm not that I'm this um, I'm not the welfare recipient and in the repatriation files there's a sort of tension with some of the administrators saying well there's too many people too many of the men are coming and asking for a pension it's unmanly they should be getting on with it so there's a there's a there's a, a, a fissure of um, anxiety about masculinity in the post-war period uh, around all of this that creates all sorts of cultural tensions. And interestingly, I think following on from Joy's point about wives and dependents and that sort of female uh, role is that you get a lot of letters to the repatriation departments from wives um, saying, look, 
my husband doesn't want to come forward and ask for the pen, but we are struggling. And so they're making that first contact, um, perhaps in a way taking that discomfort from the, the soldier themselves. Well, indeed. Yeah. Um, and they're very proactive in doing so because mm. um, financially they're in dire straits, mm. um, in desperate situations yeah. after the war. Well, there's anxiety about the widows, as, well, as, as yes, Joy's indeed. book um, <laughs> really points out, um, because there's um, a sense of, well, they should be getting on and getting married, and as soon as they get remarried, they lose their pension right. and all of those sorts of things. That's so right. there's all of, those all of those important cultural tensions around That's the right. receipt of what is a sort of 19th century charity and yet mm. constituted in a slightly different way, and yet some of those 19th century ideas keep filtering back into the mm. system. And, and my name's Suzanne Marks, and just as a, an anecdote to, to that, um, in my own family, when my grandfather died in 1963 and he had been injured at Gallipoli and survived and medically evacuated and was in one of half a dozen people in Melbourne who started what became the RSL and uh, lobbied for the establishment of the repatriation department and was himself in the first intake of staff into that department. But when he died in 1963, his wife, who was not my grandmother because my grandmother had died by then, uh, they were living in a war service home in Melbourne. And because he was deemed not to have died of his war injuries, she had to leave. And she was virtually homeless. And um, just in letters I found um, in the family, they sort of all got together and uh, my fa grandfather's children got together, including my mother, and, and helped find a home for her. And that's as recently as 1963. Hopefully mm. that's, things have changed since then. Mm. Uh, but I wanted to ask, I'm not too sure which one is relevant, um, you know, th there was this tremendous surge of support for the, for the war and young men, old men, all kinds of men coming forward to, to enlist. And my own grandfather was... Um, enlisted as, as the enlistment number 411. So he must have been at the gates of um, Albert Park <laughs> Barracks in yeah. Melbourne the night they declared war to have been so early in the list. Um, but I was also wondering, is there any connection between Sydney University and the um, people who are actually conscientious objectors and peace activists um, in the coming, leading up into the First World War? I know it was a quite a strong movement in, in Britain but was there a similar movement here in, in Australia and was Sydney, is there any indication in our archives that we were in, people here were involved in that or had any feelings about that? Yes, Richard. Julia, do you have to start? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, of course, Sydney University had George Arnold Wood, the Chalice Professor of History, who uh, during the Boer War came out as the Professor for Peace and, um, and at, you know, got into trouble uh, by the New South Wales Parliament and the Senate was, there were a few people who thought he should be dismissed, but the Chancellor saved him. So, so he was in some ways the voice of peace. But interestingly, when First World War breaks out, he, he says, this is a just war whereas the Boer War was not a just war. It was an imperial war for imperial gain and should not have happened. But World War, you know, this is a just war and we should be fighting. So he changes, um, I don't want to say colours because he didn't see himself as changing colours, but as seeing there are just wars and there are unjust wars. So he's an interesting character in this. Where um, 
dissent, where, the, where anti-conscription really had a strong foothold in the university was at St John's College. Mm. And the rector there followed the Mannix line, which was, this was not, no, conscription was wrong. Not, I'm not saying that he followed a pacifist line at all, but that this war was wrong. Um, so I think there's a slight difference between, you know, you could be anti-conscriptionist and not necessarily pacifist. So we know that. And of course, um, you know, what the book doesn't have, the book, the book itself doesn't have um, pacifist or anti-conscription, you know, you're not in there. You may have contributed to the war and to the anti-conscription debate and the pacifist debate, but you're not in there. But we like to see that the database, that if someone comes forward and says, my, my great-grandfather or great-grandmother was a pacifist, we would like, their, and contributed, public spoke and so forth, we'd like to see them in the book. So it's an ongoing project. Thank, Thank you. I just wanted to pick up on that question. I think it's um, a terrific question about pacifism in, during the war. Um, I've been doing some work about the University of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> and uh, again, like here, um, academics uh, were overwhelmingly supportive of the war. Uh, and uh, it was in the student body that the protest was to be seen. We've talked about students who went to war, but in fact, there were students on, cam on campus at Melbourne anyway who, um, who uh, actively resisted the war and you know, were vocal against it. Um, and I should just add there that um, there was a peace movement. Um, there were uh, organisations such as the Women's Peace Army and the Women's um, League of Peace and Freedom who were pacifists and, and very active during the war in promoting the pacifist line um, right throughout, right from the start um, and you know, right to 1918. So it certainly was a presence in Australia, not overwhelming, but it did have a voice and on campus I've found it anyway through student activism. Visible in a nation where our army are all volunteers, mm. you can vote with your feet. You can just not mm. choose to join yeah. up. Whereas mm. the you know the, the anti-conscription movements and so on in Britain uh, have a direct impact on mm. on the the strength of the British expeditionary force. Mm. So Australians just vote with their feet if they're not mm. interested in in supporting the war. But there is that you know perhaps more than 50% of eligible men enlist but there is still a large percentage of the male population that aren't, and, I, and that's the other side that's of what right. we're talking about, mm. Mm. isn't that's, it? It's striking, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. They don't have to join a they movement. No. They just stay home. No. Mm. So I think we've got one last question uh, from the floor before what you've all been waiting for is a demonstration <laughs> of the database website. This is actually a comment. Um, I think let's not forget that the group who, of course, probably most suffered in the university <coughs> were German speakers. And or not just, of course, of German descent, but also some many German Australians. And that probably explains partly why conscience objection wasn't so much a significant issue. The any, enemy within, by the university authorities, and often by the other staff, and sometimes with the students, were the Germans. So, can't, you know, it's not, not entirely an idealised vision, I think, what happened. Mm. And there were professors on each university campus of German origin who were forced to resign and, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. And sits in that larger um, context of internship of enemy aliens mm. and people who'd been, some families who'd been here for a couple of generations were interned as enemy aliens because of that background. 
So perhaps you could all join in thanking the panelists with me. And we can go back to our seats. And I'll welcome Joe Higgins to the microphone for the great reveal. Yes, wonderful. Um, thank you, Tamsin, and thank you, uh, panel members, for a really insightful discussion. Um, I'd like to thank you all for your patience and good humor while we've battled a few technical glitches this evening. And I'd also like to reiterate the Chancellor's thanks earlier to Your Excellency for being here this evening to launch Beyond 1914. It's my very great pleasure to be able to share with you just some of the many brilliant things that Beyond 1914 is capable of doing. Whether you're looking for something specific or just curious about the connections and lives of these university men and women and their contributions to the war effort. Before I get to showing you the website, I just would very briefly like to take this opportunity to thank several people who've been instrumental in the making and launching of Beyond 1914. Firstly, Dr. Ian Johnson in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, who built our hugely sophisticated database using Hurist that the Chancellor mentioned earlier, the e-research tool he developed here at the university. Hurist allows researchers to build and maintain their own databases without programming, and the database for Beyond 1914 contains records for over 2,500 people, linked to over 10,000 life event records, births, military ranks, schooling, qualifications, that were extracted from the Book of Remembrance. It also now holds over 25,000 scanned photographs and documents. I'd also like to thank the university's web and digital development team, in particular Nick Evans and David Jessup, who with enormous grace under occasional pressure, designed and built the interface, interactive front end for the site, which is what you now see here. I'd like to thank Meredith Hall from Sydney Ideas for her help with organizing this evening. And finally, I'd like to thank and acknowledge Associate Professor Julia Horn and archivist Nairi Morrison for their leadership and vision in realizing this very ambitious and incredibly moving project. All of the information that appears on Beyond 1914 has been taken from the university's Book of Remembrance that we saw in the film earlier, and the thousands of archive records that were first collected back in 1916. There's still a lot more information to be added and a lot to be found and contributions from researchers, archivists, family historians, and the public will form a central part of Beyond 1914 over the next two years. And we really look forward to welcoming those additions. But for now, let me show you what considerable information we do have and how you can explore it using a range of highly sophisticated search options, which, like the wizard behind the curtain, I'm going to do from the back of the room. So bear with me. Just Hello. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, what you can see here is the Beyond 1914 homepage, which has this wonderful interactive map that you can explore in various different ways here. And at the bottom, which we will be changing as and when 
different insights and aspects to the website to encourage you to explore. So some of the women that were mentioned in the film appear at the bottom here. But what I'd really like to show you is some of the ways that you can dive into the site. Using the search bar at the top, I'm gonna to type in something very obvious for everybody that hopefully will work. So you can see here with just a simple entry of Gallipoli, you get 387 results. So these will be largely men who had some involvement in Gallipoli, whether they served, worked, fought there, died there. But what you can see on the left-hand side is what we're calling facets, which are the different ways this information can be refined, uh, filtered, searched through, looking for more specific uh, types of information. So for instance, if we were to click on arts students, the list shrinks to 122, which are all the people who fought in Gallipoli and had a Bachelor of Arts degree, or were indeed studying it when they went to war. You can see as we scroll down, military award, causes of death, dates of death. If we click died in France, we then see a list of 13 men who, after fighting in Gallipoli, went on to fight in France where they were killed in action. If we click on Francis Cohen, who again appeared in the film earlier, we get Francis's page, the Book of Remembrance entry, and you can download the entry, the original entry, to see that. But you also see the map, which, as the website and database continues to grow, will be further populated. Scrolling down further, you see a timeline, and this appears for every person that we have in the database, where we have some information on them. Where you see a question mark, these are things that we're looking for, dates, information, further events from a person's life. And all of those uh, little blue lines, which hopefully you can make out from up there, are also hyperlinks and other ways to collect groups of people or information. So for instance, if I click on St. Ignatius College, I then get a map of St. Ignatius and I get a list of every uh, Sydney University student who also went to school at St. Ignatius College. You can see we're looking for a lot of photographs. But I pause here because we have Geoffrey Forrest Hughes and Roger Forrest Hughes, who we know were brothers, and actually whose father went on to become the future Lord Mayor of Sydney, Sir Thomas Hughes. And Geoffrey's son, who was also a student later at the University of Sydney, is the famous art critic Robert Hughes. So there are some really wonderful connections, both more broadly in terms of history, but also in terms of the university's wide community. If we click on Rogers, uh, Captain Robert Forrest Hughes' profile, again, we see the similar pages before. But if you scroll to the bottom, we have all of these wonderful archival uh, documents that have been sent to the university from 1916 onwards. And these are all, ah, beautiful, it works. <laughs> Photographs. So this was a photograph that was sent uh, by Captain Hughes's father uh, at the request of the university. And these are the details that appear on the back of it. 
we have a letter sent from his father to the union president on behalf of he and his wife and Roger's wife thanking them for their sympathies at the death, at his death. We have another letter apologising for the first letter that went astray, but then also mentions Brian Mack uh, at the bottom saying that today's paper contained a mention of Brian's death who was Roger's cabin mate on the voyage to England. And uh, Brian is someone else who also features in our database. So one of the things we're really looking forward to doing is, is establishing those connections and those informal communities that aren't necessarily illustrated when you look through the Book of Remembrance. We have this really beautiful coloured postcard uh, sent from Poole to Sir Thomas Anderson Stewart, who was then the dean, uh, the fac of, uh, the dean of, sorry, the faculty of, Medal of medicine. Uh, and you can tell that this is a medical student because the handwriting is very difficult to read. Um, and we will actually, we have a, a large part of the site will be inviting people to help us transcribe the many letters that we have. So please do scroll all over the internet and all over the site and find my contact details and get in touch should this be something you'd like to do more of. And then what we also have is uh, a, an article that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1917, so a year after Captain Hughes was killed, but it describes a visit to the late Cecil Rhodes' home while in Cape Town en route to the front. Um, for those of you that don't know, Rhodes was the British businessman, mining magnate, and South African politician who championed British colonialism and the creation of Rhodesia, who died in 1902. So you can see there are some extraordinary stories and people and ideas to be found here on the site. The Douglas Mawson letters that Julia mentioned earlier are here on the site. I would encourage you to type his name in and find those letters and, and read them for yourself. It's really been an extraordinarily exciting and busy last six months, but I really would uh, encourage you to, to log on, to, to have a look around and and to get in touch with us about any contributions or ideas that you might have. And so on that note, I would just like to say thank you. My last task before thanking you all uh, and uh, the members of the team is to give you the crucial website address which I'm sure you can find via Google, but if you have a pen at the ready, you can access the wonders of this site and find out ways to contribute yourself uh, by going to www.sydney.edu.au, that's the university's um, website, backslash beyond1914. And I actually typed beyond1914 into Google this afternoon and it comes up as the top hit. So that's all you need to do. So if you would please join me in thanking the Governor, Her Excellency, thank you very much for coming. And also the panellists and Joe Higgins and uh, Associate Professor Julia Horn and the whole team that's put tonight together. Uh, we look forward to seeing you online. <laughs>